0: Welcome to our podcast called Versed with Scott Tittle, a Viome Capital podcast, where we will be interviewing leaders in the long-term care sector who are shaping the future of the profession. We'll be discussing issues top of mind to them so our listeners can be even more well-versed as they tackle their day. This podcast is powered by Vime Capital, a new national financial services firm focused exclusively on providing capital solutions to the seniors' housing and healthcare sectors. For more information, you can find us at viomecapital.com. I'm your host, Scott Siddle. This is Verst. I want to welcome to our program, Seema Verma, to our Verst Volume Capital podcast. Seema, welcome.
1: Thanks for having me, Scott.
0: Right, yeah. Hey, we've been friends for a long time and worked together in certain roles, worked around each other in certain roles. And uh, I really have been so honored to follow your career over the years and and really just blessed to have you on our podcast. Today. I'm excited for our listeners to get to know more about you, uh, what you did before your role at CMS, what you did during CMS and what you've been up to now. So looking forward to our conversation today. Um, and I kind of want to dive right into something that that we worked on together a long time ago when we both worked for Indiana Governor Mitch Daniels, and you really led the charge on a very innovative uh, Medicaid, Medicaid finance program at the state level called the Healthy Indiana Plan. Um, why don't you tell us, our listeners a little bit about HIP, why that was so innovative from a Medicaid policy and financing standpoint at the time, and really why it still is pretty innovative?
1: Sure. You know, Scott, I don't think I appreciated at the time what we were actually getting done. Um, you know, at the surface level, HIP is a consumer directed um, health savings account model for Medicaid beneficiaries. And, but I think what that program was really about was that was probably the first time that there was something that was that innovative in the Medicaid program. And once CMS approved that waiver, a lot of states kind of looked at that as the model. And the thinking around that was a little bit different as well, because I think we've always looked at Medicaid as a program for very vulnerable, um, age-blind, disabled kids and pregnant moms. And we were saying, well, we're going to use Medicaid to now cover the low-income adults. And that population, we felt, you know, were probably more able and, and better suited to be uh, more exposed to some of the typical private market insurance things, co-pays, making um, small premium payments, and so we incorporated a lot of that. Um, I would say private market construct into the Medicaid program, and if the program's endured. You know, I think a lot of folks would like to see a more traditional model in in Medicaid, where you know Medicaid's just the bill payer. But HIP really sought to improve outcomes and also implement and uh, try to reinforce principles around personal responsibility. And we felt like when people were making a contribution towards their healthcare, they're gonna get better outcomes. And there's been study after study um, of that program and, it, and uh, you know the results have been strong and, and the program endures, but I think moreover, it really became um, sort of the, an example of what states could do around Medicaid and a lot of uh, states have borrowed pieces of that
0: program what i remember from those days back then was uh the governor really got a lot of pushback then right for trying mm-hmm. to create some in a very innovative medicated financing uh, program to really help move the needle on healthcare. but i think what you're what you were able to show is when you give consumers the power of choices in healthcare, great things can happen not only on the provider side but also certainly for uh outcomes for the individual as well
1: right and i think it was also um I think, a strong statement about state's rights and state's innovation. Um, You know, unfortunately, we've seen that not get better, but actually erode. And there seems like there's a a push to have the federal government make all the decisions about Medicaid and how that program works. But as you know, and I know that healthcare is very local. And, you know, the other strong point about that program is it was done in a bipartisan way. And I know you had a lot uh, to do with that piece of it in particular, but You know, that was probably uh, a great example of Republicans and Democrats coming together around a program um, and it has endured. So we haven't seen that in a long time as well.
0: Yeah, it certainly was a great example of how you reach across the party lines really to do the right thing in healthcare. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, so the reason why I want to bring that up, Seam, is I wanted to then pivot toward your your role at, at CMS as the administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, because you really brought a unique perspective to that role, one of the very first administrators to ever have significant Medicaid experience. Um, maybe say a little bit about those early years running CMS and what that was like.
1: Yeah, you know, I think from my perspective, that was my first introduction to the agency was Medicaid and helping states negotiate waivers. And wow, you know, it kind of came across as um, extremely bureaucratic, hard to deal with. Um, it was like, there's a it's a black box. We never really knew what was going on with CMS. So I really sought out to kind of change that framework. I wanted the agency to be more open, to be listening to stakeholders, um, understanding their perspectives and, and trying to really work with people out in the community and stakeholders, patients, providers to try to build better policy. I think the thing that was most surprising about CMS was I really appreciated the strong team that they had there and that those individuals were uh, extremely knowledgeable, very capable and, and absolutely willing to move the ball forward. I think they, um, you know, I think with the right leadership, they were able to achieve that and I had a great time. The only thing I would say is that in terms of surprising is how long it takes to get things done. You know, the agency can actually be pretty, um, you know, I would say nimble and able to come up with new ideas. But what happens in the federal government has to go through all these layers of, of approval through HHS, OMB, and the White House. And so it may only take us a couple of months to put something together, but it'll literally take nine months, sometimes, you know, almost a year to get it through the entire process. So, uh, that explains a lot of the bureaucracy, but I can report that I don't think it was the, the CMS team, you know, they were uh, very nimble and adept at moving good policy out the door.
0: Well, and one of the things I remember about your early tenure, SEMA, is that you really challenged your team to get out of the building in Baltimore and get out into the field to really understand right. healthcare from the front lines. And I think specifically for our listeners in the long-term care industry, I remember you toured a number of, of long-term care facilities around the country. It wasn't just in the Baltimore, uh, Maryland area. And I know that was incredibly well-received from the broader community. To see that that the highest leaders at CMS were really trying to understand the business model and what was happening on the front lines. So I remember those those days well. Yeah. Right.
1: Well, you know, we had a big initiative, Patients Over Paperwork, and it was about reducing regulatory burden. And we started out with a nationwide tour. And, you know, you're hearing from people on the front lines. I still remember visiting a SNF and they came out with two big binders, you know, five, six inches thick. And they said, these are all the regulations and they're trying to serve patients. They're trying to do what's best for the patient, you know, having to sit in the back room and go through all these regulations and are the regulations really, um, helping us with improving quality and safety and quality of life for patients. And it kind of struck me that, um, the people in Baltimore, while very well-intended, many of them have been there for so many years, 20, 30 years that, They're not necessarily in touch with what's going on in the front lines. And so, you know, my um, uh, edict to the team was if you are writing regulations for hospital, for hospice, for nursing homes, you've got to go out there. You've got to understand what their day to day is. And the markets change, you know, technology, um, staff. There's just so many things that are changing in the market that I thought it was really important for them. get out there. And the best part about it was they loved it. They really, they were so grateful for that opportunity to go out there um, and really seeing what's going on on the front lines.
0: Yeah. I think there are a lot of great leadership lessons in there and really challenging your team to really understand the client, understand the consumer Mm -hmm. and understand the impact you're making when, when making some significant changes in regulations. Mm -hmm. So Maybe um, anyway, I, I do remember those early days and how how impressed the 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 whole the whole provider community was with those efforts. So thanks for that, Seema. Certainly, and let's kind of dive into the topic at hand. Certainly, which is COVID. I mean, it's no mm-hmm. one certainly saw that coming. I'm um, certainly uh, when you uh, uh, took the, over the ranks at, at CMS. I mean, certainly to think that that was around the corner. I mean, uh, what what a what a significant change in in your in your work there. Uh, just, uh, that's understated to say the least. But what were those early moments like when you you first realized, wow, this is going to be a significant impact to our economy, to healthcare, and maybe say a little about long term care in particular.
1: Yeah, you know, I think it was a um, a slow start in terms of CMS's role. And initially, you might recall that CMS was left off of the task force. And um, they put the vice president in charge. They had just made those announcements. And I think I got home, it was a Saturday. I remember I got home from the gym, flipped on the TV and they're reporting about the facility in Seattle. And I immediately was kind of gotten in action, spent the whole weekend trying to coordinate what our response was gonna be. I really wanted us to go into that facility so we could understand what had transpired and really try to take lessons from that experience. And that required a lot of, as you can imagine, logistics and planning and coordination. But I called the vice president and I said, hey, you know, CMS regulates the nursing homes. And he immediately got it and said, you should absolutely be on the task force. And so that week, you know, there was a lot of different meetings that we were attending. And I think by the end of the week, we went to Seattle and actually visited um, the community and the public health leaders, met with the governor. And I came back to the office and I, I told my chief of staff, I said, this is a game changer. Everything's different. And this, what we're doing today is has changed. And we literally got out all of the you know project management worksheets. Here's all the things that we're working on and just went through. It was kind of painful, quite frankly, and kind of said, hey, we've got to stop because I need the entire agency focused on a response here. So um, it was pretty early on, um, so I think that probably was end of February, and it was before the shutdown, before the NBA, and uh, so we were kind of springing into action in the, you know, pretty early on. But it, it did end up being, you know, totally different for the agency. We almost had to stop what we were doing to be able to respond.
0: Well, Seema, I think for those of us in long-term care, we kind of, it's one of those moments in our careers where we all remember where we were when, and certainly remember where I was, certainly like you did too, when we heard about Kirkland, Washington, it was uh, uh, certainly a sense that something was going to be different. I don't think anyone knew exactly what just yet, but you know, I'll tell you, Seema, you you got and deserved a lot of credit for the outreach you undertook after that week to all providers and all all associations Um, to really understand kind of what was needed, what was essential, what resources must be employed immediately. And then maybe as importantly, understand back to our discussion on, um, on the regulations, you know, what, what, what flexibility was needed to make sure that residents were going to be safe and that, that staff was going to be safe. And, and you really went on a, a listening tour, a virtual listening tour with uh, all of the healthcare providers and, and, uh, and constituencies to really understand kind of what regs could be waived, could be amended, what public health uh, directives needed to be modified. And so, I, again, you you got and deserved a lot of credit for that. And I have no doubt that despite the fact that COVID was incredibly devastating for long-term care in particular, Uh, the sector would have been much worse off uh, without your leadership. And so thank you very much for that. You know, uh, last week, President Biden, much to everyone's surprise, including many of his closest advisors on 60 Minutes, announced the pandemic was over. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I think that obviously caused a lot of confusion, a lot of frustration, uh, a lot of important questions to be asked. You know, we're still losing several hundred people a day to COVID. Tens of thousands of people are being hospitalized. Certain markets are getting impacted um, harder than others. For long-term care census is still down costs are still through the roof there's a workforce crisis i mean i guess this may be a philosophical question but uh, is there a point which we can really truly say the pandemic is over
1: well, i think we've gotten to the point where because of you know whether it's immunizations or by this time i mean I, I i know few people at this point that have not gotten COVID. so um and i think that most people when experienced it, they got through it you know some people you know, it was fewer symptoms. Some people had some more severe symptoms. So people have gotten through it. And I think the vaccines have largely been effective. So I think it's more of we're learning to live with it, right? It's not, it's never going to go away. It's like the flu. It's going to be there every year. And hopefully, you know, the the vaccines will protect us from having the most um, severe responses. And, you know, it looks like it's going to mutate and there'll be different variants, but um, that being said, I don't think that all of the impacts, right, are, are necessarily uh, alleviated. So if we think about the mental health impact, I think we've all seen that in terms of our kids. There, that's sort of a, it's not a short term, you can say the pandemic is over or not over, COVID's still here and the impact that it's had, you know, we're all dealing with, especially on the healthcare system. I think that the nursing shortages in particular, and what's going on in the nursing homes has a downstream impact to the whole system. It's not like nursing homes are in isolation. And if they don't have beds open, then that creates kind of a backlog in the hospital. They can't discharge patients. Um, Their stays are longer. and, And what we're seeing from hospitals across the board, I think, you know, the financial results are coming out. And they're having issues as well. A lot of them are reporting losses, um, and some of that is the, the nursing shortages. They're paying more. Some of it maybe can't discharge patients. So there's a there's a lot of different reasons that that you know kind of had their root in COVID.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, certainly for all healthcare providers, the continuation of the public health emergency is is incredibly essential. Uh, it's set to expire here in October 15th or 17th of this uh, this year. Um, and certainly, without announcement that they're going to discontinue it, it's going to continue into early 2023. So, there's at least some good news there. But boy, the advocacy efforts to continue the PHE through uh, 2023 to make sure that all those stimulus dollars, Medicaid funding, the regulations for, for waivers of certain regulations continue, that'll be penultimate for the sector. And and so I think where, how Washington sees uh, the pandemic and where how, where it is in stage of either re- recovering or not that'll, that'll say a lot for, for next year as well. So I guess maybe turning to the, the Biden administration, um, you know, kind of a general question, what, what are your thoughts on, on President Biden's healthcare agenda generally?
1: Well, I think that they have largely been focused on COVID, right? I mean, that was something that, that he ran on and they've been focused on that. And, and I think the other area that we've heard a lot about is health equity, which I think is certainly an important issue for the country. And it's, a a long time coming that there's this type of focus. Um, beyond that, it's not clear to me exactly where else they're trying to go. And, um, you know, a lot of it I think is, is, has to sort of do with what's going on in, you know, in the landscape. So for most administrations, they have a big piece of legislation to, to implement. We did not have that, which gave us the opportunity to really focus across the market on so many different issues. They have not um, until recently. They now have a, a big piece of legislation that's focused on drug pricing, and so I think that their focus on COVID, health equity, and now it's going to be you know the drug pricing piece and putting out those regulations and those. That's a, you know that's going to be a huge undertaking. So it seems like that's their focus, whereas I think we had um, you know kind of a broader look at it in absence of a piece of legislation.
0: Yeah, well, two pinpoint uh, proposals that I want to maybe get your thoughts on that the Biden administration has put forth with respect to long-term care. One is President Biden in his State of the Union address um, actually actually mentioned long term care providers and announced a initiative to create a national minimum staffing ratio for all skilled nursing providers. That obviously has gained a lot of concern among the provider community, mm-hmm. uh, not only from the significant cost and potential operational um, impact, but also just from the current workforce crisis that many sectors are going through. Yeah. What, what are your What are your thoughts on on that and where that could go?
1: Yeah, and I and I didn't say it initially because. I feel like they've talked about it, but what they're proposing isn't going to necessarily move the needle. So I think we're all concerned about quality and safety in in long-term care facilities. That's something, you know, a long-term issue and something that, you know, has consistently uh, been something that most administrations have focused on. My concern is that Are we implementing the policies that are really going to get us there? And and something around staffing ratios, I just don't, I think it's irrelevant. Even yesterday, they announced um, they finally got a database of, you know, here's the ownership of nursing homes. And at the end of the day, very bluntly, I would say, who cares? Who cares who owns what? I think what patients want and what their families want is high quality care and there should be transparency around what's going on in the nursing home so that families and patients can make better decisions that work for them. And we need to be focusing our time of how do we improve quality inside the nursing home? I think it's it's safe to say that the survey certification process that we've had isn't working, right? We have the same issues over and over and over again. How do we move the, the ball forward on infection control? And having a database of ownership and having staffing requirements isn't going to move the needle on those issues that are impacting patients today. So I've been a little bit, I appreciate their focus, but I've been disappointed on the strategies that they are taking. I don't think they're gonna move the needle forward. And I think it's important for the country at this point to really think outside the box on survey and certification. Um, You know, we have an antiquated process that isn't yielding better results, it's not changing things. And it's cumbersome, and if you think about it, you send a a survey out there once a year. There's a lot that's going on, you know, the other 300 days, 364 days in the year. We've got to figure out a better way of understanding what's going on in nursing homes, supporting the nursing homes. If there are problems, how do we help them? Um, We can't just say, here's a citation and a fine. And, you know, good luck to you. That that has not been effective. We've got to figure out how to get in there and, and make improvements and support them in that process. And so I think a rethinking of that would be a whole lot better than a database of ownership. At the end of the day, you know, you may see some differences in, in for-profit or profit, but that's not improving the life of a person living inside a SNF. So um, hopefully we'll have a different focus going forward.
0: Yeah, thanks for your thoughts and on direction. All that, Seema, it's really helpful. And, it, you know, and I'm now thinking back before COVID hit, uh, you were doing a lot of work internally, especially among the CMS regional offices, on helping improve the survey and certification process. And I know a lot of us would have liked to have seen where that that conversation could have gone, you know, uh, outside of COVID. So, thanks for your hard work on all all that, and couldn't agree with you more. Um, you know, Seema, we've we've got our time kind of drawing a little bit to a close. I, I kind of want our listeners to get a sense of what you're up to now. I know you're on the board of several really impressive companies, Lumaris and Monogram Health. Maybe say a little bit about those two companies in particular, what they're doing to help move the sure. needle in healthcare and kind of what drew you to uh, to an opportunity to work for each of them.
1: Right. Well, what I appreciate about uh, Lumaris, which is a company, it's an MA plan, but they're also focused on direct contracting and their sole focus is value-based care and working with health systems to implement value-based care. And I'm a big believer in that in terms of how we change the system to deliver better results and lower costs. And the same thing with Monogram, they're focused on their sort of value-based care for kidney care patients. And as you know, kidney care is one of the highest cost centers for a Medicare We spent a lot of money and most of the patients are are getting dialysis and having to go to facilities two or three times a week and monograms really trying to change the whole paradigm around kidney care and um, in-home dialysis, but actually preventing the progression of kidney disease and they're doing it in value-based arrangements. They're bringing the best of breed solutions. They're doing home visiting and they're making a real difference. So I'm excited to be a part of those companies and- you know, right now I tell people all the time, it's like, what are you, what are you doing? And what do you, I feel like I'm in the dating phase. I'm, I'm looking around meeting, talking to a lot of people and we'll see what comes next. Not ready to get married yet.
0: Well, Seema, again, we've, we've been friends for a long time and I've had the opportunity to been blessed to be a colleague of yours as well. You've had incredible career, both in, in public and private sector and consulting, and I'm personally really excited to see what you do next and, and hope we have you back on the podcast to see, kind, of, kind of talk about that in the future. That'd be really a great experience for us. Hey, before I let you go, I ask all of my guests um, one question, which is what's on your nightstand. Is there a book that you're reading oh. right now that you'd like to recommend, <laughs> or is there a past reading that you hand to people and say, this is something you must read, whether it's uh, something professional or something, or, uh, you know, a, a personal uh, read you really like. I mean, is there anything you recommend? Right.
1: Well, you know, the funny thing is Scott, um, there's so many of my colleagues from the white White House days and Trump administration days are writing books. So my book, my nightstand is stacked with everybody's books, Scott Gottlieb's Kellyanne Conway, Jared Kushner, um, Deborah Berg, Scott Atlas, I've got all of their books. And, you know, some of it is, gosh, do I really want to relive that again. But, uh, you know, they've all done a great job with their books. and And I'm working my way through all of them.
0: Well, thanks, Seema. I think there are a lot of great uh, titles in there and, and reads for people to pick up and follow. So again, Seema, I can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, thanks for all you've done uh, throughout your career and specifically thanks for what you did during COVID to help the long-term care providers get through it. I uh, really can't thank you enough. Uh, for our listeners, thank you for tuning in uh, to another episode of Verst of i Capital Podcast. This is Versed.